as intolerant. Uh, Our motivations are presumed to be filled with hate. Christians are evil. And it's unsettling, isn't it? It's one thing to be told that you're wrong. It's another to be told that you're evil. This is the the situation that the Apostle John was facing as he wrote the the letter from which we read. The, the, The church he wrote to wasn't just made up of people who were left behind by the seemingly more enlightened. They were also maligned. One of the implications of the letter seems to be that the Christians were reviled as as lawbreakers, apostates, disloyal, evil, and not just by a few false teachers and the folks who had left the church, but by the whole community of family and friends. To to be a a Christian Jew at the time that John uh, was writing was to face the hostility of the whole culture. And that sounds a little bit familiar. It is deeply unsettling. I don't want to be thought of uh, as an idiot for being a Christian. But what, what I find even harder is to be told that I'm evil. So what do you say to Christians in the first century and today who are losing confidence because they don't want to be left behind bad guys? And John's answer is this letter. We saw last week that John has a a double agenda to to expose those who had left the church for what they are. They, They were liars who didn't speak for God and the truth of Scripture and to reassure discouraged Christians about what they are. And in today's passage, the very first thing John does is reassure. And it's there in chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. What a, what a reassurance for a, a church family that is unsteady and lacking confidence in their faith because the world doesn't know them. Are we the, the baddies? Well, John's response is to put an arm around them and he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is the the, the big idea of our passage. Christians are God's children. And you can know that you are a child of God because you, you act like one. And your life provides the evidence that you're truly his. It's a simple logic, but it's worth repeating. If you're a a Christian, if you're born of God, that that should create change. A a true Christian is someone with faith in Jesus that makes a difference to their lives. Uh, And that's the basis of our assurance, our confidence that, that we do know and have the truth in a world where many of us are reviled. 
Let's unpack that as we're guided by the headings in the outline in the order of service you received or on the screen next to me. And firstly, children of God ought to live lives transformed, marked by righteousness. Shall we read verse 29 again? If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The word righteousness appears explicitly six times and and implicitly several times more in our short section. And so the very specific logic of our passages is that if you're a child of God, then a hallmark of your identity is righteous living. That means that we need to think carefully about what John means by righteousness. But first, what's the motivation for being righteous? And we have it there in chapter 3, verse 2. We will see him as he is. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The same idea is there in in 2, verse 28. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink, shrink from him in shame at his coming. Three different times in in our passage, John uses that language. He is going to appear. And, And what he means is that your life can only be properly and rightly understood when you know that God is coming back down into this world and you're going to see him. Your, your life is only rightly understood when you believe that the one who already has appeared and come into this world is going to come back to this world and appear a second time. John is talking about the appearance of the, the Son of God in history. The, the he is Jesus. Jesus has already come and will come again. This is the the, the Christian claim, and it's a big one. We believe that Jesus in the future is truly coming in the flesh into this world to live here finally and forever. And that has to determine how you live your present day life. We, We all know that what you believe about the future radically changes how you live in the present. And the Christian message is that the future is certain, and it is that Jesus will enter into history once more, finally and forever. This is the fact of his second coming, but we're also told a little of the the quality of that coming. At the end of of verse 2, we shall see him as he is. In the beginning of the letter, John told us um, in 1 verse 1, I saw him, uh, I heard him, I touched him. John was an apostle and, and saw Jesus as he was. He saw him when he was living as a carpenter and traveling preacher, but he also saw on a very select few occasions, like at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is true glorious, divine identity revealed. John is saying, I'm an apostle. I literally saw him as he was, but that is not how he truly is. 
One day, you will see the living God, Jesus Christ, as he is. And that means you're going to get a a glimpse of true glory. We will see him as he is. So, what happens when you see him? This is where righteousness is, is really revealed to be necessary because we're told there's only two possibilities. It's there in, in, in 2 verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John says every single human being will see him as he is, and one of two things is going to happen. Either you'll stand before him in all your joy with confidence, or you'll shrink from him in shame. Some clever people uh, who have studied this passage helpfully make the the connection between the the shrinking and shame and the same language being used in Genesis. The very same word for shrinking and shame is used to describe Adam and Eve when the world was perfect and they stood before God naked and unashamed in Genesis 2. And similarly, the word again used after the fall of mankind and when they are naked and ashamed in Genesis 3. Consequently, Adam and Eve hide from God in fear and shame. And I think what John has in view is that contrast between Adam and Eve standing confident before God in in Eden, unashamed in paradise, and also naked and ashamed in a fallen world, cast out of Eden and separated from God. That's what he hints at here. And it's the same twofold choice for us. When he appears, you'll either stand unashamed, confident, and joyous, or you'll be like Adam and Eve after, and you'll, you'll shrink and, and be ashamed. How is it that Adam and Eve went from being unashamed and confident to shrinking and ashamed and hiding from God? Well, John calls it lawlessness. In verse 4, lawlessness is a special word in the New Testament that means disorder and chaos and rebellion and everything that's wrong with the world. That's their lawlessness. In other words, that's their unrighteousness. What John is saying is that children of God, Christians, ought to live lives marked by righteousness because that is what allows you to stand before the living God with confidence. And many people in in St. Andrews today, I guess, in, in 2023 might react and say, are you really saying that some people are going to be ashamed before God and, and separated from him because of unrighteousness? The most go-to phrase I hear from my friends and from people that I know uh, who aren't Christians is, I really think that most people are good. And I know my friends and and neighbors, they believe different things to me, uh, but they're really kind people. They're really nice people, super generous. So so what's wrong with the, the statement that most people are generally good? Why does the Bible claim that some will be ashamed before God when Jesus returns to judge? 
When the Bible talks about righteousness, it's talking about something completely different. It's not talking about being generally a good and nice person. Jesus unpacks that uh, really clearly in the Sermon of the Mount. He says that when the Bible speaks of righteousness, it's talking about something more than just rule following and, and being kind. And the way that he gets there is by asking the people he's talking to, do you follow the rules? Maybe you do. Maybe you're a pretty good person. You've never harmed anyone. You're faithful to your spouse. You've never committed a crime. But then Jesus says, in your heart, in every single one of your deeds, in all of your history, Have you done every action in perfect, selfless love? Has your motivation in all the things that you do been total love for the living God and the person next to you? Jesus says that only when you combine utterly pure motivation with perfect action can you then talk about righteousness. Righteousness is to do everything in your life with the best of motivations. Uh, And I think even if you believe that people are, are generally mostly good, if you examine yourself for just one second, if you reflect on your own personal motivations for why you do things, I think you uncover really quickly that we are not altogether righteous. Have you ever said a, a kind word to anybody but done it because you wanted them to pay a, a compliment in return? We know that our, our, our motivations at the most basic and underlying level are, are self-serving. Maybe you're, you're not a Christian here today and you don't buy the Christian narrative that people are not basically good and that we're fundamentally lawless and unrighteous. Can I ask you this? Can, can, can you at least admit that you would love to live in a world where the people you live with, go to work with and hang out with, acted towards you with such perfect motivation that they never had anything other than pure motives filled with love for you? Wouldn't you want to live in a world where everyone around you acts in a way that is perfectly loving without any manipulation or selfishness? Can you also admit that there's a a gap between the, the reality of the world we want and the world we live in. Get on Twitter, watch the news, think of your own family situation perhaps. We're not righteous. Our motivations aren't pure or perfect all of the time. Everything we do is with mixed motivations, and what John is saying is that when you realize this truth, When you look at the teaching of Jesus concerning righteousness, if you face the facts, the only thing that you can be led to say is, I'm not perfectly righteous. I need something new. I need something supernatural to come from outside of me. I need a righteousness that is not my own because I don't have it. 
If I'm going to to see the living God and stand before him, I need a righteousness that is alien to me. Which leads us to to our our second point. And in chapter 3 and verses 1 to 3, John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. You almost get the sense that John realizes his own problem, his lack of righteousness mid-writing. The word see is actually behold. Behold what great love the Father has given us. Can you imagine the love that it takes to give people that are, are, are lawless, who reject the living God, for the living God to come and say, I will make you my child. I will make you righteous, even when you're not. That's what John is, is doing here. He's saying, behold, the immense love that has been given to you, discouraged Christians, that you should be called children of God. It's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? The the theologian J.I. Packer put it this way, adoption, being a, a child of God, is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. I'm all too aware from from talking to to many of you that our relationships with our our earthly fathers aren't always perfect, and maybe there's an impasse that prevents us from beholding the Father's love. If that's you, I'm sorry, and we're here for you to walk with you through that. For, for others, maybe we take for granted that God is our Father. It's just Christianese to say that. Wherever you land, please take a moment to do as John says and behold the love of a perfect Father. And what kind of love has the Father given to us? Well, it's the love of the gift of righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who came for the first time 2,000 years ago, who John saw and heard and touched, he came and took my unrighteousness so that I may know his righteousness. On the cross, he took my wicked motivations on himself so that when I stand before him one day, I may be named righteous. Do you have that today? Do you know the immense love of the gift of righteousness that is not yours and that you can't have on your own? It's only available in and through the person of Jesus. And here's how you know that you have that today. Are you in your heart at any point saying, Yeah, behold the immense love of God. Are you thinking about it and then doing what John does, breaking out in in praise and thanks? Behold what kind of love the Father has given to me, that I should be named a child of God, even though I, I don't deserve it. If there's any part of you that says that, that believes that today, John says you are. 
That is our status. You are a child of God. John is saying, only by the gift of righteousness, by being born into God's family, can you stand before God. It's not about your righteousness. But then he goes on to say, but you can know that you have it. You can look at your life and ask, are there, sta- are there signs that I do stand confidently in Christ? And that leads us to, to our, our third and final point. Children of God can have confidence because of their transformed lives. John's answer is, a a true Christian is someone with faith in Jesus that makes a difference to their lives. And specifically, in in 2 verse 29, it says, abide in him and you can know that you will stand confidently before God. What what abiding looks like, John puts positively in in verses 29 and 3 and 7, It looks like practicing righteousness. In other words, and and this is the, the clearest way John puts it, if God is righteous, if you're born of him, there should be evidence in your life that you're living righteously. If if you hope in God, there's purification happening, transformation, and righteous action comes from being righteous in him as a gift. Three times, at least, John makes the point positively. When you act in a way that your deeds are motivated by love, true love, the love of Christ, then you can say, there's real change in my life. That's practicing righteousness. But but John puts it in the negative as well. You'll have noticed it's in there in verses 6 and 8 and 9 and 10. And in verse 9, John puts it really dramatically. No one born of God makes a a practice of sinning. John says here that you can have confidence before God because of your transformed life. And part of that change will be that you practice righteousness, not sin. And let me clear the air, because some of you are likely thinking this. I've been with you up until now, perhaps. I can, say, I can see that my motives, and I can say that my motives aren't righteous. I can say that, sure, I, can, I need to be born of God. I can even say, behold, the immense love that the Father has shown me. But when John says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Am I even a Christian? John John puts it so strongly in 3 verse 8, and I recoil with horror. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Wow. The language of verse 10 is that of children of the devil. And since no one has pure and perfect motives and righteousness, is there anyone who isn't? I haven't been preaching for long. I've been working in churches for about five years. I certainly haven't been working for for churches as long as Paul has, who's much older than me, much, much older. Um, But but, but he and I have seen the the same story happen again and again. Christians come to their minister and say things like, 
here are the things that I'm really struggling with in my life. Here are the, the sins that I'm not able to overcome. They keep grabbing me and, and haunting me. I, I've heard some of you say, I thought I would have grown more by now. I thought there'd be more change in my life by this point. And now John comes and says, if I am really a child of God, I, I shouldn't be practicing sin. Is there a single Christian out there? Let, let me say this. Though it sounds that way, we, we have to read this little section in context. And John cannot mean that Christians don't sin at all. He, has, he accepts the reality that Christians still struggle with sin. We've seen this already in our series, chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And in our text this morning, we, we see it a, a couple more times. Chapter 3, verse 2 says, When he appears, we shall be like him. In other words, it's only when you actually see Jesus that you'll be fully righteous. Don't think you'll be fully righteous in, in this life. You won't be. And the same can be said for 3 verse 3, when it tells us that everyone who hopes in him purifies himself. The implication being that there is sin that we need to be purified of. And crucially, in, in verse 7, John says, Do not be deceived. And that's when we're reminded, that's when we know that what John is talking about here is actually something very specific in his local church context. Those who have left the church are, are living in, in such a way that denies the most simple commands of God. They're acting in total disobedience and they're saying it's completely okay to do so. They're saying things like, it's fine, it, it's not even sin. And John is saying, don't be deceived by those people who say that you can say you're a Christian and live in habitual sin. Those two things cannot coexist. When John says, do not make a practice of sinning, he's saying that the Christian does not make sin their normal habit. He or she does not habitually sin and react indifferently to it and says things like, I'm okay, I've got grace. John's not talking about occasional struggle. He's not talking about wrestling with personal sin in your life. Rather, he's saying, do you wrestle? Do you struggle with your sin? If so, then you know that there's transformation happening. Please don't hear from John this morning that you can't sin any longer, otherwise you're not a Christian. John accepts the reality of our not yet fully righteous lives. However, don't settle for just that. Don't settle for, well, John gives the big thumbs up to occasional sin, so my occasional sin is fine. We, we do have grace but the clear message of this passage for us Christians is, is don't settle for sin. Practice righteousness. And we do that not because practicing righteousness and avoiding sin will somehow earn us our right standing before God. It won't. 
It's only a gift that can do that. We, we kill sin and we practice righteousness in response to the immense love that God has shown to us in the giving of his Son who gifts us his righteousness. When you feel discouraged because the world doesn't know us and thinks us both unenlightened and or evil, remember who you are in Christ. Give thanks for the signs of growth and righteousness in your life. Earlier we sang beautiful words that said, Because his righteous life is mine, and all his merits now I own. I am a child of God on high. I am adopted, loved, and known. Behold him. Behold Jesus. He will change you. Let's pray. God, our Father, please help us to put away our sin. Please show us the path to true righteousness, which is a gift. Thank you for the immense love that you have shown us, that we can be called your children. There are some here wrestling with what it means to have the gift of God, of Jesus' righteousness, please show them the beauty of the gospel, the good news that it's, it's a gift. Help us all to respond rightly to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.